Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 7, verses 40 through 52. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem, where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, good morning, church family. As always, it's a real joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to start by going out on a limb here. Um, I imagine if I was to go around the room and talk to each of you personally and ask you this question, just to survey the room. And the question that I asked was this, what is the gift? What is it that Jesus brought to the earth? I would probably imagine that I would get a lot of responses like peace or joy, or Jesus brought hope or salvation, forgiveness, second chances, those things. I bet I would go through a hundred answers before we ever got down on the list to Luke 12, if ever we got to this word. But Jesus said in Luke 12, do you think that I came here to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So I'd get the answers of peace, joy, hope, forgiveness, division. It, doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same. But this is, if you were at Christmas Eve service, you remember Jake walking through Luke 2. Maybe you remember the words of Simeon as he looked over baby Jesus. He said, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that is to be opposed. And so in a year that has been defined by polarizing topics, I'm going to add one more to the list. Jesus. And as we're walking through the Gospel of John and we get into the heart of the Gospel of John, this key theme emerges. Jesus is polarizing. And we see it in the text that we're walking through today as we will see the masses are divided over Jesus and who he is and the religious leaders are divided over Jesus. So I'm just going to warn you, if you're still in like Christmas mode and you're still holding on to the nostalgic peace, joy, rosy cheeks, manger scene version of Jesus that everybody loves and no one has a problem with, it may be time to set him off to the side and pack him up with the Christmas ornaments because we have to look at the reality of Jesus in John 7. And here's why this matters. I want to make this real practical for us too. Um, here's why this matters. Guys, if this is how the world responded to Jesus, who was perfect, 
right, who always said the right thing with the right tone, right? Husbands, wives, you know what I'm talking about. But he always said the right thing with the right tone and he never did anything wrong. If this is how the world would respond to Jesus, how do you think they're going to respond with us when we begin to identify with Jesus? And so if you're a note taker, I've got a real simple outline for today. If you wanna just kind of follow along, these are kind of the four major like bullet points. First thing we're gonna look at is the masses that are divided. Then we're gonna look at the religious leaders and how they were divided. And then we're gonna ask the question, what does this mean for us? And then we're gonna end with hope, the hope in it all. So let's start first with the divided masses. Last week's text ended with this invitation from Jesus in verse 37, it said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So that's the invitation Jesus is throwing out there. And in verse 40, where our text picks up, a debate breaks out. When some of the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. While others said, this is the Messiah. Now, I wanna just pause here because maybe you made the mistake that I did, the same mistake that I did. I have read this text so many times in my life, but I've always just blown past a key word in here. See, what I've always thought is what they're fighting over is they're trying to figure out, is Jesus a prophet or is he the Messiah? Like those are the two questions. I never noticed the the in there. It's not, is Jesus a prophet? The question is, Truly, he is the prophet, while others are arguing, no, this is the Messiah. This is actually the same questions that got asked to John the Baptist back in chapter one. Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? The Jews were looking for someone and waiting for someone very specific. And so the crowds are being kind of divided here. Is he the prophet or is he the Messiah? For us, maybe you're confused and go, what's the difference? I don't even know. Let's just dive in there real quick. First, the prophet. The reason they were waiting for a, the prophet is because God had promised Moses in Deuteronomy 18, this is what he promised. He said, I will raise up from them or for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I've commanded him. And I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. This prophet was to be a second and better Moses and the people were waiting for him. And so now they're watching Jesus who has just fed masses of people bread from heaven, right? Maybe you think of Moses in the desert providing manna from heaven and now he's offering them supernatural water. <laughs> And they begin thinking about too, when Moses, God used Moses to strike a rock and provide water in a desert. And there's people in the crowd that can't help but put it all together and go, this is the prophet. This is the one we've been waiting for from Deuteronomy 18. But some in the crowd are arguing, no, this is the Messiah because God had also promised David in 2 Samuel 7, this, that when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, King David, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
this promised Messiah was a second and better deliverer king. Like Isaiah had promised, right, that this child would be born for us and the government would be placed on his shoulders and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Eternal God, Mighty Father, and Prince of Peace. And it was pro uh, the prophet Micah who pinpointed even where the Messiah would be born. So they even knew where to be looking, that Bethlehem of Hapreth, you are small among the clans of Judah, and one will come from you who will be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So some in the crowd are going, this is the prophet. Nope, this is the Messiah looking at these promises. And as the crowd begins to divide over who is Jesus, it actually seems a bit shocking that no one ever emerged with like option C on the bubble sheet of all the above. Because Jesus is both. And they couldn't see that. Jesus is the prophet, but he's better than that. He is the very word of God who isn't satisfied with just simply providing physical bread to quiet rumbling stomachs or water to quench dry throats. What he wants to provide is the bread of life, living water that would spring up into eternal life for all that would receive him in faith. He is the Messiah, the true and better deliverer king who isn't just seeking to establish some momentary kingdom, but an eternal one where his people will dwell with him forever in peace and security. Jesus is both of these things and so much more. What we've seen in John, as we saw in John 1.1, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The word of God made flesh that he would dwell among us. It's John 1.29 when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was John 3.14 when Jesus said of himself that I will be the one that gets raised up and all that look to me, though they have poison in their veins, will be healed. They won't die from the sin that's within them. He's not just the prophet. He's not just the Messiah. He's, he's all of these things. He is beyond comprehension for our little minds. And at this, verse 41, some begin to argue, but surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? And John just lets that hang. This is actually, as he's writing it, that they call this like John's just ironic moment that he'll just drop on us, like, because we're supposed to catch it there. Like the irony is, we as the reader know the answer to that question. Actually, he was born in Bethlehem. Like sovereignly, he was born in Bethlehem. It was God's design. So the crowd is, was divided because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? And the servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. I love the raw authenticity of this moment. See, back in verse 32, these chief priests and Pharisees had sent these servants out to go arrest Jesus. So when they come back empty-handed, it's a pretty natural question for them to ask, why didn't you bring him? And their answer is so authentic. No one ever spoke like that before. 
See, there's times in scripture where Jesus will be surrounded by crowds and they want to stone him or kill him that he seems to escape the crowd by like these magical, mystical powers. You know what I'm talking about? It's like all of a sudden Jesus just like walked right through them. I think in those times, like it, it could be a bit more like mystical, supernatural, whatever. I think this one is just purely like it is what it is on the page. I think they were wanting to lay hands on him, but I don't think there's any like mystical reason why they didn't other than just simply they were just sitting there stunned. They'd never seen somebody perform the miracles that he had performed before. They'd never heard anybody talk like this before. They just simply didn't know what to do with him. Guys, I think one thing that can happen within us, like with the Christian church, is we can begin to like lower Jesus down to our level. And guys, I just want to always, like every time I get an opportunity to teach, just push him back up a little bit. Like, guys, You've never met anyone like Jesus. And I think it's a healthy reminder for us as we go out and talk to people around us about Jesus. I totally get it when somebody looks back at me when I start walking through the Bible and they're like, walking on water, raising people from the dead. Sounds a lot like, like myths and legends to me. Like I look at them, I'm like, I totally get that. I used to think that. You just, have, you'd never met somebody like Jesus. Continue to look at him, and I'm telling you, he will prove himself over and over again. But right now, like your, your tiny little mind, there's just no category for somebody like this. Because you've never met anybody like Jesus. The masses are divided. The religious leaders now, let's look into their inner circle. Watch them as they're divided. So then the Pharisees looked at them, looked at the servants, said, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. So with the masses, what we saw is we saw a confusion, we saw ignorance, we saw an inability to comprehend with finite minds what was right in front of them. But now, now we see the awful, terrible power of pride in the religious leaders. As I think if I was to insert a word here, and I don't think I'm stretching this at all, you can already see pride in their hearts. Look at how they even talk about the masses. But these people, which doesn't know the law, is a curse, right? These idiots here, they don't know the Bible like we know the Bible. Of course, they're going to be led astray, but we never will. Ego puffs up. And while this like ego express train is about to leave the station, they're forgetting a member because Nicodemus pipes up one of their own, probably shocked them. And he says, doesn't our law say that we shouldn't judge a man before we hear him and knows what he's doing or whatever? And their response, verse 52, our last verse, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. If you couldn't see the pride in their initial statements about the crowds before, we definitely see it here, guys. Verse 52 is painfully revealing if you have eyes for it. First off, simple argument. Just because God had never done something before doesn't mean he couldn't do it now, right? Like, so their argument of like, well, God would never do that. It's like, well, maybe he never has before, but he could do it now. Like they're already beginning to, to twist this argument. But here's the worst part. Verse 52 is a lie and they know it. No prophet's ever risen from Galilee. Actually, um, Jonah was from Galilee. 
Nahum was from Galilee, and one of your probably biggest heroes, Elijah, was likely from Galilee. That's clear in the Old Testament. And that's the worst part. I think they knew they were lying. But have you ever gotten so puffed up in your pride before that even when you were wrong, you weren't gonna admit it? You weren't gonna back down? This, this is the worst part about pride is that pride isn't simply blinding, it's also corrupt. And when it came to Jesus, guys, their pride was so blinding, so corrupt that not even God in front of them could change their minds. Not even God himself could change their minds. That's like one of the things we talk about in our, our house more than anything else is we, we're just trying to lay a foundation within our young kids of just the importance of a soft heart, a receptive heart, a listening heart. Pride is dangerous. I even maybe want to just ask the question like quickly, like what's even your experience with Jesus? Like have you ever twisted scripture or twisted truth or, or been corrupt or just been blind in, in pride and used that to push Jesus away. Has anybody ever done that before? I, I did. I did for years. I think when you get to this part of John, you begin to see belief and unbelief and you begin to see the characteristics of both, both crowds and people. Guys, we have to understand that when it be, when it comes to unbelief, there are a thousand different ways to reject Jesus. A thousand different ways to fall down that hill. There's only one way to Jesus, only one way back up the hill. And that's by humble, desperate faith. Humble, setting aside your pride and your ego and desperate because you realize this is what you need more than anything else. Everything you've been searching for is in Jesus. Thousands of ways to reject Jesus, only one way to accept him, humble, desperate faith. So we've talked about how the masses were divided over Jesus. We talked about how the religious leaders were divided over Jesus. Now I wanna talk specifically about what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And I wanna go back to the initial statement I made before, guys. If this is how the world responded to Jesus, how do you think they're going to respond to us? I think one of the things we need to walk away from this text hearing very clearly, guys, is don't be surprised, church, if people don't just fall over and accept the Jesus that you love so much. Don't be surprised if they actually reject him. And don't be surprised of what that means for you. You know, we talk often about like the importance of memorizing scripture and holding on to the promises of God. Here's, here's a promise for you if you want to memorize this one. This is Matthew 10, 22. Everyone will hate you because of my name. If you want to hold on to a promise, maybe that's one to hold on to. Everyone will hate you because of me. As I begin to realize more and more that if the goal of my life is to never face rejection, 
never face just that odd feeling that you're kind of on the outside of the family rather than the middle of the family. Never get that odd sense that like your friends are hanging out, but they're not inviting you. Like never getting the sense that like, like when you said that to somebody, they're like, oh, that's great. That's great. And then they walk away and like roll their eyes. Like, like if the goal of my life is to never experience rejection, then I'll never be able to walk with Jesus. Like if this is the reality of his life, I can't expect anything different if I'm gonna walk with him and follow him where he's gonna go. Guys, I think as a church, we, we need to come to grips with that. Guys, these aren't just words that I think like you all need to hear. These are words like I need to hear. I don't know like how criticism or cold shoulders or rejection like hits you. Like for some in this room, like you've got a supernatural power, like praise God, you're like, you're like Superman for me. But like criticism, cold shoulders, rejection, it just like rolls off your back. That isn't how it works in my life. When I experience those things, guys, it's, it stings. And, and I don't know if, you, if you're like, if you've shared this experience with me, but like the way that it begins to wage war in my mind and in my heart, it just creates this like internal wrestle that I don't know how many hours of my life have been lost in insecurity, in fear. Jake will poke at me every once in a while. He, he, he threw this line out at me once. I didn't know he was quoting the office. I felt a little bit embarrassed about like my office knowledge not being on par that day. But, um, but there's that, that scene where, where Pam Beasley says, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure if Al-Qaeda got to know me, they would like me. You remember that? Jake once was poking at me. He's like, he, he threw that line at me and he's like, that's true of you, isn't it? Like, you're pretty confident that if Al-Qaeda got to know you, they would like you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a likable guy. You got to know me. Like, it kills me when I, I, could, I know of somebody that maybe doesn't like me. It's like, it, it just like, I can't even... I can't even fathom that somebody would not like me. That was, that was what's, wow. Just trying to be honest here, guys. The battle for the approval of others is a fight I fight every day and I want it. And so one of the things that I do every December is I always just spend some time reflecting back on the past year, kind of thinking forward a bit and just take what I call like a personal inventory. And uh, within that personal inventory, each year I typically adopt a word or two that like for the coming year, like I got away from goals because I couldn't remember them like a week later. It's like, but a word, I can hold on to a word. Here's my word for 2021. Maybe you want to steal it. It's courage. It's courage. I haven't spent a portion of an afternoon just trying to define the word courage as simply as possible. And I just defined it as this, persistence under pressure. That I would actually have the guts to have like a conviction on something and hold to it regardless of what anybody else thinks, does, says, whatever. And even that God would begin to have victory in my life that it wouldn't just like, you know, like I'd look good on the surface, real calm on the surface, but like underneath there's that war going on but I would have courage and just be able to be persistent under pressure to move forward. 
One of the things is I was just reading through the gospel of John again in preparation for walking through this text today and thinking through this, this reality that Jesus was rejected. So we're going to face rejection. I, I began to, to just ask this question as I was reading through. I'm like, what if Jesus was a slave to everyone's opinion of him? Like, what if that was a marker of his life? I began thinking through like, wow, like, you know, that scene like, like where many people are wanting to trust in him. You know, this is the end of John 2. Many people want to trust in him, but he knows it's a shallow faith. Or the time that he went back into his hometown and they're welcoming him, but they're really not. Or the time where like they loved him so much they wanted to make him king, but like a chapter later they want to kill him. You know, this whole chapter, John 7 even begins with the unbelief of his own brothers. Yeah, you should go to the festival and tell everybody who you are. That'd be great. Because they didn't even believe in him. And it's not going to be too long until one of his closest companions will stab him in the back. I mean, if Jesus was a slave to everybody else's opinion, like I am, his emotions would have been, it would just been all over the place. I think what I began to marvel at as I walked through the gospel of John and rereading it this time was his consistency. Just how stable he was in the midst of all of that. Rejection, acceptance. I began to ask the question, why? Like, why can Jesus be stable in the midst of that? And guys, I think there's like a list of reasons way too long for us to recount. I just want to highlight a couple of things that I think were like foundational for Jesus's ability to be bold in the midst of all this. Number one, number one, he knew what he signed up for. John 1.11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. That was no surprise to him. But he came, because verse 12 says this, but to those who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Jesus knew what he signed up for. Second thing is, he held to the opinion of the person who mattered most. And that was his father. Those two things being foundational, I think that added to his stability. And I began thinking of that myself. Like, again, this is why church is so important for us to see John 7 and to remind ourselves that Jesus was misrepresented. He was misunderstood. He was missed completely and rejected. If that happened to Jesus, it's gonna happen to me. And I need to be okay with that. I know what I signed up for. And second, I need to hold to the opinion of him who matters the most. This is what God says of me in Romans 8. Here's a passage to memorize. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery, right? The living waters that is the spirit that's in you. We didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we will also be glorified with him. Guys, you know what is the most powerful force in this world? And in particular in my household? It's the last name of Klein. I look at my three boys and my little girl. And guys, there's days I'll yell at them. I'll be disappointed in them. We'll have all of those talks. 
and they will be rebuked, will be challenged, will grow through it, but nothing will ever change that they are my sons and that's my daughter. Nothing. And as we walk with God, it's the same experience. He's working in us, he's changing us, he's, he's shaping us and all of that, but one thing remains consistent. What is happening here? is I am unshakably God's son. And when you have the unshakable approval of the God of the universe, the flimsy approval of everybody else doesn't seem to matter anymore. Does that make sense? And one thing I just wanna do church, if we could like, like we are living in such tense times, like, like everybody's so worked up about everything, so fired up. So when I get into a message like this and my voice gets raised and we start talking about rejection, you're probably getting all tense as well. I'm sorry for that. Actually, here's what I want this passage to do. What I want these truths to do guys is not to make you more tense and more ready to fight. I want you to walk out of here today with freedom. Freedom and knowing that you have the unshakable approval of the God of the universe. So now you're not going out into the world to battle. You're going out there to proclaim and display Christ. And if they don't accept you, if you begin to feel like an alien and a foreigner and a stranger in this world, you're free from the weight of that to know that what God thinks of you hasn't changed at all. That's what I want to define my 2021. Courage fueled by Romans 8:15. Now I want to add this clarity real quick because I did mention these are very tense times that we're living in. And I wanna add clarity because there's some in the room that I think are more like me that are a bit more timid when it comes to approaching the world and toward life. There are some in this room that love to be contrarian by nature. And I don't wanna add more ammo to my fighters out there, okay? Guys, not all rejection is good rejection. I wanna make that also clear. We are living in times right now that are incredibly depressing because you're watching this take place constantly of so much finger pointing and motive assuming and straw man attacking and ranting without listening from the right and from the left. Everybody seems to have blood on their hands. It reminds me honestly of like what happens when marriages come into my office and I begin to see a marriage disintegrate between two people and what I call the hurt cycle. Like, now the relationship has gotten so toxic that no one actually remembers what the original issues were anymore. We're just purely going back and forth and flinging mud and justifying, well, I can sin against you because you did this to me. And it's just going back and forth. It's the hurt cycle. And somebody has to break it. Because we need to remember guys, not, not all rejection is good rejection. The goal isn't rejection. I want everybody to know Jesus. I want everybody to, to humble themselves and to be desperate for Jesus and to cling to his feet. So my goal isn't rejection, but I do accept it as a reality. And I think to those of my friends out there that, that are like fighting intense and you got your swords out and you're ready to go to battle right now, let me just, just ask this question. And there's not political parties attached to this at all. I just, just want to ask this to the church. Guys, 
are we fighting on the wrong and dying on the wrong hills? Are you fighting and dying on the wrong hills? Because number one, I never want to divide with people who need Jesus over the wrong issue. I don't create us versus them over wrong issues. Those people need Jesus. I'm not shutting them out. I'm not pushing them away. I'm not gonna divide over an issue that doesn't matter when they need Jesus. I wanna get Jesus to them. The second thing, and I think the worst thing could be that somebody didn't just, it's not that they rejected Christ, they're actually rejecting me. And I mean it like in that order. Like they never actually pondered to think about Christ because me, the Christian, had put such a bad image on him, they didn't want it anyway. God forbid that somebody would ever reject Christ because of me. And so as we walk into this world, church, like it's gotta be our mission. Like if people are gonna reject me, God, make sure that it is because of Jesus on my lips and the love of Jesus in my heart and for nothing else. And if there is something else in there, if there's somebody that you've pushed away from Jesus because of your actions, guys, what this world needs right now is for people to stop and apologize. That's what breaks the hurt cycle. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? If someone is going to reject me, let it be because of the name of Christ on my lips and the love of Jesus in our hearts for nothing else. I'll end this text with a little glimmer of hope that we see in John 7. Because it can be a bit sobering and, and a bit somber to talk about rejection for 30 minutes. Rejection is a reality that as we go into the world, we're gonna scatter the name of Jesus. And it, sometimes his name will scatter and it'll fall on hard soil and many will reject. But the reminder is that some will. And that has to motivate us. Some will hear and receive. And we see that movement. John 7, you see people starting to believe. You see movement in Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus in the night in John 3. Now he's standing up for Jesus a bit. And that would have put his life in danger in this moment. At least among his friends, his popularity probably plummeted a bit. And we'll see him again in John 19 as he's with the body of Jesus helping to bury him. There's movement in Nicodemus's life. The masses might be rejecting. There is fruit. And even their own argument. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in Jesus? Even their own argument that sounded so good to them, that argument will dissolve under their feet as in just, it's not too many days later. This is Acts 6, 7. So the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the truth. Their very argument began to dissolve. <laughs> because yeah, as you go out in boldness, proclaiming and displaying Jesus to the world, a good number of people aren't gonna give a rip, but some will. And the church is born and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church, be a courageous people. Let me pray. God, I, uh, I just want to grab 2 Timothy 1.7 that Jordan spoke earlier over to us or over us. 
and just pray that over us as a church. That you did not give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. And so God, today, we are not a weak and frail people. We're not a people on the brink of disaster or on the brink of destruction or on the brink of being shoved off to the side or disappearing. No, we're your children. (laughs) We're your sons and daughters. You're establishing your kingdom and your work will not be thwarted, stopped. You're building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, by the power of your spirit, make us a bold people with a willingness to identify with you regardless of what that means in our families, in our workplaces, or among our friends. And God, maybe even this morning, right now in this service, there's people that have continued to push you away because pride has gotten the best of us. God, would would you capture new hearts today? Would those who have been previously defined by pride come before you now with humble and desperate hearts and filled by your spirit now have a willingness to pursue you regardless of the cost, God. Do that great work. We love you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.